Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Today's podcast is sponsored by Global Financial Data. We've been using data series from GFD for almost 10 years, ever since I wrote my first white paper. The data has been super useful in other areas like creating CAPE ratio calculations, And for over 20 years, Global Financial Data has been aggregating and transcribing data from original sources, which no other data provider has done before. Please have a look at their website at globalfinancialdata.com for more info and to set up a trial account. If you mentioned that I sent you, they're offering a 20% discount on all new business subscriptions. Again, that's globalfinancialdata.com. Happy New Year, podcast listeners. This podcast should be finding you in the very first days of 2017. For many of us, thank God 2016 is over, but we're recording this at the end of 2016, and I am super excited to have an awesome guest today here. Jerry Parker, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, So we've done about 30 or so odd episodes had almost half a million downloads. And we, we tell people to send in emails that say feedback at the Meb Faber show, send us your questions. And by far, and it's not even close, the vast majority of our questions sit around the concept of trend following. And we talk about everything on this podcast, value investing and, and buy and hold and asset allocation, but trend following seems to get the most questions. And I also have a pretty wide audience, but also a lot of younger guys. And so I said, you know what? I just had beers and a hamburger with Jerry in New York recently at Mineta Tavern. If uh, if you've never been, it's an awesome spot. But I said, man, you got to get you on the podcast soon. We get back. And he said, absolutely. So Jerry's calling in from Tampa. The way we have to get started here, I'm going to apologize to you because you have to be sick of it at this point. But I'm going to start by we got to do it's like, it's like star wars we got to do a little origin story at this point for a lot of the younger audience i dug this up off the internet so i'm going to read an ad from october no so summer probably 1984 and you know where i'm going with this but the audience does not and it says richard j dennis of c and d commodities is accepting applications for the position of commodity futures trader to expand his established group of traders Mr. Dennis and his associates will train a small group of applicants in his proprietary trading concepts. Successful candidates will then trade solely for Mr. Dennis. They will be not allowed to trade futures for themselves or others. Traders will be paid a percentage of their profits and will be allowed a small draw. Prior experience in trading will be considered, but is not necessary. Applicants should send a brief resume with one sentence giving their reason, with one sentence giving their reasons for applying list the address. They must be received by October 1st, 1984. No telephone calls will be accepted. Jerry, do you remember seeing this ad? Um, did someone pass it along to you? How, how'd you come across this? 
Yes, I remember seeing it. Um, I mean, I read the Wall Street Journal every day, and uh, that's where I saw the ad. And the, uh, but it's it was seldom that I would read the, the ads or the. But I happened to stumble onto that ad, and I did see it. And I thought it was a great idea. I guess I had read an article about Richard Dennis and Business Week or something like that, and so I, I knew it was legit. I knew this was an opportunity, a good idea. And so, but uh, I applied in 1983. So that specific ad is for the second group of turtle um, in 1984. But um, I saw the ad in the, I guess, the summer or fall of 83. And um, so I was a, a member of that first group that started trading January 1984. So um, let's talk a little bit about that. Some of our readers may not know who Richard Dennis is. And, and a question I always wanted to ask, and, and I assume you know the answer, may not, is was part of this inspired by the Trading Places movie, you know, Mortimer and Randolph, uh, the concept of, and the discussion that, that Dennis and Eckhart had was, is it possible to train traders or is there some innate ability? You know, is someone just born Stevie Cohen or can you actually tr train them with some methodology? And that was the genesis of this concept. Was it something that was inspired by trading places or did you, have you ever uh, thought about that or asked? I mean, I've heard about uh, people speculate, but I don't know for sure. I, there's no doubt that Rich probably thought traders could be trained and Bill was probably more skeptical of that. I don't think there was a bet. I think that equally plausible is Rich wanted to uh, hire some people to trade uh, a systematic discipline rules-based approach so he wouldn't have to, let's say. Well, let's have some of our money be traded this particular way So, since because uh, he may want to do things more discretionary, but I don't think it was a formal bet. I don't even know if, if it had anything to do with trading places, but um, there was definitely, I believe that in the turtle trading class, there was, um, they did talk about, they sort of disagreed to, to the extent that trading could be taught. And when we were taught rules, I mean, they weren't hard rules to, you know, hard rules to understand. Uh, they definitely believed in systematic rule base. So being taught to trade is not really the a good accurate description of what we were done. We were, anybody can be taught the rules. It's really, can you be taught or can you figure out for yourself whether you're gonna be able to follow rules much more so than, because the rules weren't complicated and you know everybody had a college degree or whatever. So, but over time it, it is, it does become very difficult to follow those rules. and to the sort of uh, almost approaching 100% that's sort of necessary. And so, you know, you just graduated from UVA a few years prior. So Wahoo Wah, you were a business student, right? And I think started out as an accountant, right? And so were you trading at all on your own? Or was it more of a just happy coincidence that you saw this and, and started brand spanking new? Or what was what was kind of the, the place you were in life when that happened? I was in public accounting and desperately looking to do something different. And I would watch, you know, Wall Street Week, and uh, I sort of uh, liked Martin Zweig, and I read his book, and he was sort of his philosophy was a little bit of trend following, and I started reading about trend following and subscribing to his newsletter. And then I was totally uh, hooked. I believed everything about trend following. 
from the very beginning. Uh, longs and shorts, yes, of course, perfect. Uh, markets other than stocks, why not? I mean, uh, diversification. So trend following and all of these elements of what we were eventually taught, I just believed them when I first heard about them. And I thought they were absolutely wonderful. The object objectivity of this strategy. And then to me, it just boiled down to uh, one question, and that is, um, will the big winners pay for the small losses? And if so, you know, we're, we're going to, we're home free. We're going to, it's going to be easy. We're going to make lots of money. So it didn't, of course, it's not easy, but it didn't take a lot of convincing or like, you know, like now, now we have to figure out ways to convince clients to invest. You know, when you find somebody who understands it and really likes it and loves it, it's, it's uh, much better and, it's, and it, does, it shouldn't take much uh, time to, to choose the exact perfect words to convince people that this is a good strategy. And and it's funny. So I, I was reading a because I'm of the belief there's a lot of investing strategies that can work. And so there's a quote from Seth Klarman, one of the world's most famous value stock investment managers, but he does his debt and other other trading as well. But he has a great quote that I think applies very similarly. And he says, Warren Buffett once wrote that value investing is like an inoculation. It either takes or it doesn't. And when you explain to somebody what it is and how it works and why it works and show them the returns, either they get it or they don't. And it's it's so funny to me to hear him talk about value investing because it's the exact same phenomena when it comes to trend following. And so some people, like you said, they hear it, they see it, they're like, oh, that makes absolute complete sense. Um, Just the same as some people say, you know, value investing makes complete sense and they get it. And then there's other people, you know, and, and, and there's many investors like this that they kind of want to fiddle with it and, you know, they'll email me in. So, you know, we wrote a paper almost 10 years ago now on, on trend following and have seen, I'm sure, every question in the book that you've seen. But the basics are simply you're buying markets that are going up and you're selling or shorting them as they go down. And that's it. Doesn't In my mind, it doesn't matter that much if you're using a moving average, a channel breakout, whatever it is. Um, the basic premise is, is in general the same. But so, so many people will you know, want to question and introduce subjectivity such as, hey, you know, Meb, is it really when it crosses the 200 day moving average or should I wait a month or should I, you know, just wait till volatility, you know, tamps down? It's kind of like that's the whole point of the system is removing that that subjectivity. So it's funny you say that because it there's a totally opposite. Many people would think value investing is totally different, but it's really kind of, you know, does the philosophy immediately take um, and for a lot of people, it's 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 not intuitively uh, obvious for many reasons. So, all right. So you were you did a few years at this training program, and you guys made a bunch of money. I've seen estimates as high as over a hundred million uh, for the group as a whole. What eventually caused you to say, you know what, I'm actually going to go out on my own and, and start my own shop? What, what was the thinking there? Well, you know, we. Loved working for Richard Dennis and Bill. They were the greatest people ever, the smartest people we could have ever possibly learned from. Our training was the best. It couldn't have not been better. The sort of turtle story has become a story, and what's been sort of lost is what an amazing, uh, genius group of guys that trained us. So we were willing to stay there forever. There's no way we could have ever foreseen managed futures and CTAs and managing billions of dollars. And so just pleasing Rich and 
trying to do all we could to show him how much we were appreciative and uh, that he didn't make a good decision to hire us and to start the program was all I ever had in mind. And so the program just ended. And it was a, supposed to be a five-year prog- uh, contract program, but it ended after four. So I just think that over time, you know, there was a lot of hassle dealing with 20 guys. And and so it was, you know, they just sort of maybe lost interest a little bit. And yeah, I think there were attempts to keep it going or to roll it into a big multi-advisor fund or, you know, I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, it was, it was sad and it was, I'm sorry that it ever ended because there it was a lot more to it than the two-week training course or the knowing the systems. It's kind of like trying to sh- tell somebody what it's like to be a Marine. You can't really do that. They have to experience it on their own. And so I could tell you all of the secrets and all of the good ideas, but being there with those people for four years was uh, beyond just learning the systems and stuff. So it's not anything that I think any of us wanted to see ever come to an end even if it meant making far less money. And so and so you picked up shop, I'm assuming, was this in Chicago or in New York? It was in Chicago. And so you did you move back to Virginia at this point and say, you know what, I'm going to start a CTA? Or what was the kind of progression to get Chesapeake off the ground? That's exactly right. Moved back to Virginia, met some people in New York. You know, at this point, we probably averaged 100 to 200% a year with Rich with uh, taking on incredible leverage on risk. <laughs> I lost 60% in one day, but I was still up 140 for the year. Did so, you say six zero? <laughs> six zero. Oh my but we were God. Only trading, uh, we were only trading a couple, you know, a million or two, two million. So to get Chesapeake started um, with, you know, all I, all I had was a phone, you know, a telephone and a quote machine. I, I think I started with two million. So that was more than enough. And that's about what I was trading with Richard Dennis. So it didn't take a lot to get going. You know, our, our expectations were looking back uh, very low. And uh, that's the world we lived in. A telephone, a quote machine, follow your rules, nothing automated. You know, two or three million was more than enough. And so, you know, so Chesapeake started, I believe, in 88 or the late 80s. I mean, you have to have one of the longest continual track records of any trend fars in existence today. Is that right? I mean, I'm trying to even think of any others that go date back to the 80s. Oh, there's some, you know, maybe Campbell, mm-hmm. John Henry used to be Milburn, I think, was probably before us. But, but yeah, you're right. It's a long track record for sure. You know, it's fun to look at because, uh, you know, particularly, I mean, you must have put up some something like seven, eight, nine, ten years in a row out of the gate with without a losing year. And if I remember correctly, it may not have been the first losing year until oh one. Is that is that right? Or was it was it a was it were you like the first few years in business after trading? Was it a scenario where you're like, man, this this is, um, I've kind of found the holy grail, or was it a fairly trying process at times in the early days? What was, what was kind of your thinking, and how has it evolved over the years in the, is almost, man, almost 30 years of, of trading? 30 years of Chesapeake, you've already, you've already hit 30 years of trading. It was, you know, it's, the markets are tough, and it's a struggle. I mean, we were fortunate to have, you know, a lot of years in a row, and then, uh, it was probably a lot of luck, calendar years, you know, um, I'm sure a trailing 12 month, we had negative periods, but um, just evolving over time to trading program that um, 
went from trying to make 200% to maybe 15% and having to evolve the trading methodology, the trading systems to something that's more longer term. But I would say that by far the most challenging period has been since 2008. So in the kind of the Fed zero interest rate policy to throw out some excuses. But, you know, this whole recent period, whether it's CTA is going to continue to struggle every year or two and uh, or if we're going to get back to being more consistent because we have so many different markets we can trade, you would think that under that idea, that's one of the main reasons that we had a, a track record that had very few losing years was because of all the different markets and we just didn't have to just trade stocks or just trade anything. It was long, short, every market in the entire world virtually that would put us in a pretty good situation if you have a positive expected system to be pos- to be profitable frequently. So Not to interrupt you, but you've touched on a couple ideas I actually want to expand on a little bit more. The first was, you know, roughly when you first started Chesapeake, about how many markets were you trading? And then how has that expanded or contracted? You know, how many markets are y'all, y'all trading today? And how has that kind of evolved if you've, as you've gotten bigger and, and, and more kind of institutionalized? Uh, the early years, it was probably 20-some markets, just U.S., now it's grown over time to over a hundred different futures markets, in, uh, currencies, interest rates, commodities, and indices. And we also trade a fair amount of single stocks as well. So I'll, I'll, the problem, though, is that there's a minimal amount of diversification we probably get from tra- trading all these markets because you know, another bond market or another uh, short-term rate or another currency, it's not adding the type of diversification probably that you would get out, out of just the first 20-some that we used to trade. So it's, it's nice to say you trade 100 markets and 100 single stocks, but... A couple questions there. First, is it singles, actual single the stocks trading the quoted listed securities or are you trading the single stock futures? We trade both. So if we want to get some clients would require us to trade single stock futures and some clients are okay with single stocks, there's not a great deal of difference. So we trade both. I think trading indices uh, with with a systematic trend following is a bad idea. I think it's something that is a huge mistake the CTAs have made over the years. Uh, number one, not trading single stocks. And then number two, not having more of a material risk allocation to equities so that when you know the equities are the only market that's really trending well, we at least make a little bit of money versus sort of not doing as well and asking people to sort of hang on to this alternative investment when their stocks are doing really well. So I think that trading the individual names is way more diversification. It improves the drawdown and the risk profile and applying a trend following system to a index, a basket, where within inside of that basket, you would want to be long some, short some, and maybe flat some. It's kind of unfortunate situation. Well, it's, it's interesting because that, that, I think that kind of makes you an outlier because most of the trend followers I talk to don't do a whole lot with stocks or individual securities. And it's always been a curiosity to me because and you've written about this and talked about it, but it seems like so much opportunity. And, and we talk about this with even just the market cap indexes and owning stocks in general is that 
the S&P in and of itself is a trend-following index. And so you're guaranteed to own more and more of the winners as they go up and less and less of the losers. And a lot of investors don't know that. You know, they think that the S&P or, or market cap indices and stocks are just built based on earnings and revenues, and that's not even the case. None, none, the only, only input is simply the price of the stock and shares outstanding. And so by definition, market cap is trend-following. But to be able to do the risk management and apply it I think is a brilliant way, and I almost see never uh, any any CTAs doing it, which I think is is crazy. What 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 do you think are some of the? Do you trade any particularly esoteric other markets that most CTAs don't, or do you consider most to be fairly fairly middle of the road, typical sort of sort of markets? They're all liquid, and they're all exchange traded. CTAs want to trade all the markets, and they set their portfolio. Uh, up so that they can have maximum diversification in the currencies, commodities, and interest rates, and the sort of risk parity per market, per sector uh, strategy, basing your position size on the volatility, inverse inverse to the volatility. So we just go a step further and create our stock portion of our diversified program. We, We try to get a couple stocks from each sector to have as much diversification as possible, not trying to find the best trending equities at the time or at any time. No, we treat it just like the uh, currencies, commodities, and interest rates. We trade them, we trade them all of those, and then we try to create them. Uh, we weight the markets based upon the correlation and giving us uh, the least amount of the, the most diversified portfolio. But since there's 5,000 stocks or 1,000 stocks, you have to make different choices and handle it slightly differently. But we try not to handle it too differently because and stick with the same philosophy that we have on all of the other markets. This is an interesting point you brought up, talking about volatility and leverage. And one of the things that you know took me a while to get as I kind of grew up in my career is that there is no reason to accept any investment. And Bridgewater writes a lot about this. I think they call it the number one mistake in investing, where... There's no reason to go out and accept stocks, for example. So stocks historically, we'll just use some easy numbers. They're, it's a little higher, but let's say 10% returns historically in the U.S., 15 to 20% volatility. Historically, you know, earlier in the century, 20%, maybe as low as the S&P now. Let's call it 15% just for, for um, simplicity. But there's no reason to actually go and accept that, that you have to take that, that sort of leverage. You could go and apply leverage to that. I mean, leverage is already embedded because most listed U.S. stocks have debt. Or you could say, you know what, I don't want that much volatility exposure and say, I'm going to add cash to this investment and bring the volatility down. And so what Jerry's talking a little bit about is that once you have all of these instruments around the world, so you could have the most volatile market ever, uh, you know, I don't know, I have zero idea, cocoa or something, let's say it's super volatile commodity, but there's no reason to accept it that you have to trade it at that 30% volatility so you can take it down to a lower. And so this is what a lot of risk parity funds do in asset allocation, and it's a little bit of a different, you know, concept. It's funny to see these guys raising billions of dollars on this concept that's only been around that they've been talking about risk parity for ten years. And I always tell people, I'm like, CTAs have been doing risk-based portfolios for thirty years now, going back to the you know '80s and traders in the '70s. It's just a good marketing spin on it. But I think it is an important concept, and we actually wrote a post on this recently. 
talking about adding cash to a portfolio. So there's a lot of ways to do it. You can do it on an individual market level or as a portfolio as a whole. And so Jerry was talking earlier in his career where you know they were targeting much higher returns, you know, 100% plus per year, and now has dialed that back to say, look, trend following and managed futures, you could target 10% returns and 10% volatility, you could target 50% returns, but you're going to be going through much higher drawdowns. So the methodology is is still robust. It's just kind of what what best suits you and what your what your goals are. That's right. So from a systematic trend following point of view, you probably best to have each one of your trades have the same expected return and the same expected sort of loss. And so you can trade the euro dollars. You got to you know, trade those a lot larger. You got to buy 500 euro dollars for every 10 S&Ps. So it's the same trade. It's the same bet. It's the same expectation the, of profit from that trade. And it's you know, pretty, pretty straightforward and uncontroversial. I, I like the risk parity from a 60-40 point of view. I think that makes some sense, I suppose, to you know probably try to get an expected return equal from your stocks and bonds. I think the problem that people have had with risk parity in that respect is a lot of people decided to leverage up the bond part towards the end of the cycle. So that's kind of a problem. You don't these things work, but they kind of it's it's troublesome if you try to implement doing the right thing in the middle or towards the end of a very long bull market. And what Jerry's talking about, listeners, is that say you have a traditional 60-40 portfolio, 60% stocks, 40% bonds, dollar weighted, the actual risk in that portfolio and the volatility is actually something like 90% stocks, 10% bonds, because the stocks are so much more volatile, it swamps the portfolio. So what most risk parity people do is they'll say, no, let's put like 80% in bonds and 20% in stocks, and then leverage that two times and still come to the same volatility level so that stocks and bonds contribute equal volatility. The problem, of course, is that it's been marketed over the past few years after this 30-year decline in interest rates. And so if you don't start to include a lot of other assets or strategies, the bond portion, um, you're actually probably taking on a lot more risk than people think. So a couple questions. So managed futures, you know, I'm one of the biggest proponents of it in trend following in general as a strategy. You know, we use many funds that have trend following strategies. We've been talking about it for years. Almost every investor that comes to me, both retail institutional, all the way up to the real money, endowments and pension funds, has at most a sliver allocated to trend-following strategies. I have a lot of thoughts on this, but but what's your takeaway on on why that is so, so low? I think it's important to separate the two out. I think it's important to sort of look at the trend-following piece, which is just uh, entries and exits and you know, the, the, the sort of money management we've talked about, and then there's the market piece, currencies, commodities, stocks, and bonds. I think that people like stocks more than anything else and bonds, and the currencies and the commodities, I'm not so sure about that. That doesn't sound, I'm not, I may get fired for doing that if I if I make that 25% of my portfolio, you know, uh, which is what we do. We're 25% currencies, commodities, interest rates, and, and stocks each, and so that's risky. I mean, it, you can talk about the diversification level and how much better it is, and you're doing shorts as well. I just think that's a lot of uh, alternative craziness for more conservative investors to take. No amount of explanation would probably allow them to hi- hire you to, to manage their whole portfolio in that way. 
And in CTAs, they don't even try to sell themselves as the optimal portfolio. It's absolutely the optimal portfolio. There's nothing better. Um, it's systematic. It's rule-based. It's taking small losses. There's lots of risk control, maximum diversification with shorts. Man, sometimes there's nothing to, to be long. There's nothing out there that you can invest in. You've got to participate in these downtrends as well. But we sell ourselves as crisis alpha, and which makes no sense because it's not always going to be crisis alpha. And you, you say to people, you know, you, you, you grovel for 5 or 10%, you know, which doesn't help your overall portfolio. Hey, I've got CTAs at 5 or 10% of my portfolio. That's not much crisis alpha. And, you know, when you ask for 5 or 10%, that's what you get is 5 or 10%. So one of these days, someone's going to wake up and say, hey, why didn't you guys ever tell us that this is not a five or 10%. This is the core. I mean, I don't know of any CTA who doesn't really believe that, for God's sake. How could they not even believe that that's, that what we do is the absolute core? If all of this, any of the CTAs really thought that the optimal portfolio was mostly stocks, a lot of bonds, and five or 10% of trend following the way that with diversified trend following, then most of them, including myself, have the complete power to create that portfolio. But we sort of pretend because we don't want to make people mad or we don't want to step out and be bold that, oh, it's, you know, this is just perfect for crisis alpha. But it really is the core. And I believe over time, maybe after the next bear market, people will see the benefits of diversified markets, real diversification, not just different stocks, but currencies and commodities and the short piece as well. Well, here's the example is we'd wrote, written an article a few years ago is actually on dividend stocks. And we've talked a lot about why I hate dividend stocks in particular right now. And I think it's one of the most nonsensical investment strategies. Listeners, you may have heard Larry Swedro's podcast. We talked a lot about dividends and we, we said the analogy we gave, we said it's the, if you remember the old school Pepsi challenge where Pepsi was clearly preferred as a soft drink to Coke to, in blind taste tests. And both Coke verified that, Pepsi verified that. But the problem is, once you told someone that they were drinking Coke, they vastly preferred Coke. That, of course, led to the abomination known as New Coke, but that's a separate story. But so, you know, we talked about a lot about how dividends just have a great brand. It's kind of like Coke. People understand dividends. They think they're getting a check. It's the most nonsensical investing strategy. Obviously, we like shareholder yield, which has done vastly better than dividends. But it's the same thing with managed futures, or sorry, trend following. I often use the two synonymously. And, and listeners, by the way, managed futures is can mean it's a it's a broader umbrella though most managed futures funds are trend following it's actually a broader umbrella so we'll we'll stick to trend following but i said at a recent conference that the jerry was at this evidence based investing conference in new york i said audience all it's a bunch of advisors institutions i said all right if you put on a blindfold so say the taste test and you ran with historical results. I don't care if you used BTOP 50, the Altegris, any of the indices for the trend following funds. And you blinded them. So you said stocks, bonds, whatever, real estate, commodities, housing. And you put all these asset classes into the Monte Carlo optimizer and said, what's the ideal portfolio? The largest allocation in almost any circumstance is going to be trend following. 
And the problem is most people take that and they look at it and they say, oh, no, oh, no, no, no. We're going to do stocks 50, bonds 40, trend falling 10 at the most. And so, you know, we wrote a paper about it this, this past year called the Trinity Portfolio and just updated it recently and said, look, a buy and hold allocation is just fine of traditional long only assets. The biggest problem with that historically, like you mentioned, is big drawdowns because you're long and, and, and people call it buy and hope, whatever they call it, where you're, you're close your eyes, you hold and no matter what. But historically, that's had very large drawdowns. And I've always said my, my desert island strategy is a trend following strategy. The problem with trend following as you mentioned, twofold. One, historically, it's had a little bit bad branding with the futures concept. You know, trading uh, sounds like trading currencies and commodities and things like long-term capital blowing up, which wasn't a trend far, is the opposite of a trend far. And then two is that you look different, which is one of the biggest ones. Is in humans have a very hard time, uh, particularly when everyone else is making a ton of money, which is the scenario you're talking about, the S&P being straight up since 2009 in this environment, when you're doing any other strategy, it looks suboptimal. So sorry, I was just going on a bit of a long rant there. But so I think it's a little bit of a, like you've talked about before, a branding problem. But if, if you had to be intellectually honest, trend following should be a very large part of your portfolio. And so our recently launched digital advisor, actually, that's the starting point. It's half in trend following strategies and, and actually can go up from there. All right. Sorry, that was a little rant. <laughs> well, I enjoyed being in the audience at that conference, man, listening to you speak. And I believe you said um, that if you look at the numbers, your numbers, the numbers that you had looked at, that trend following or diversified trend following CTA programs are usually command about 50% of the allocation. And so we're at an investment invest, evidence-based investing conference. I have to say that if I had been running the conference, I would have had to stop the conference right there. It goes straight to the front and say, wait a second, you mean to tell me there's evidence here? Because this, you know, this is what we're here for. Uh, there, there is PhD approved factor, this momentum applied to these different various asset classes, long and short. When you run numbers, it, it deserves 50% of your portfolio. Let's uh, cancel all of the other speakers. We've got to get into this. This is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can just tell you that did not happen. <laughs> on the on the panel that I was on, we had Wes Gray, who so Wes uh, is a PhD from Chicago, now a professor. So grew up under Fama Efficient Markets, but Wes, to his credit, is very intellectually honest and has fully embraced trend following as a concept. So he started out, you know, efficient markets, and then kind of went the factor based look value which is where most people kind of start off in that world and then said, no, actually, look at this data. You know, all the data shows that trend following is a, is a totally reasonable strategy. So Wes has been a big convert. I actually read somewhere once that Ed Thorpe was a big trend following convert. So I'm actually looking forward to his memoirs, which are coming out in the first quarter of this year to see if he talks anything about that. But, 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 it's, but it's funny because people... We'll run the optimizer. They'll look at it. People will sit down and say, Meb, what, what is the best hedge to a traditional portfolio? And I'll say, look, there's only a couple of choices. But, you know, historically, the government bonds have done a good job, but they're not guaranteed. And particularly at 1% interest rates, they may not be that in the future. 
managed futures has been across the board and trend following the best hedge to a traditional portfolio, largely because it can be short everything when everything else is going and when it's hitting the fan. And then, of course, buying a basket of puts. But buying a basket of puts has a ne- negative expectancy. And so really only one of those, in my mind, is is the most viable choice out of the three of those. But again, I'm preaching to the choir. But I would just say that I would look at the problems differently. I don't think that that's the question to ask. The question is, this diversified portfolio, currencies, commodities, stocks, and interest rates, long and short with trend following, this is the core. We're not going to start with this inferior product that has about an 8% return and a maximum drawdown of at least 50%. We're going to start with this other strategy that's PhD approved, Fama French approved, this momentum with all these different markets. And it makes no sense to sort of say, what do I add to something that has such a horrible risk-adjusted return? No, you start with the core, the strat, the CTA strategy, and maybe you add a five or ten percent of long-only passive uh, equities because sometimes that is the only thing that's going to work. Case in point was a you know a year ago August where the markets crashed and rallied. So that's just a situation where trend following is going to really underperform, and sometimes just never getting out, even though it sounds incredibly risky. And it has been risky. That is sort of the only strategy that's sort of going to work. But I don't think that it makes much sense to identify the superior idea based upon evidence and then think about how we're going to hedge something that may be our favorite investment, but has no intellectual basis for being a material part of our portfolio. So there's a feature we'll do now with with people that are particularly spend a lot of time or, or publish a bit on Twitter where you can actually go and sort people's tweets by their most popular tweets. I printed out a list of few of your most popular ones and we can kind of use them as jumping off points because I think they're actually really interesting. And your most popular tweet was actually a quote a couple months ago where you said, beating the market is hard, even surviving the market is hard. Stamina may be the most underrated quality. You know, I think that just is resonates big time with me. We did a exercise the other month where I went and looked at all of my old blog posts. We've written over almost 2000 going back 10 years. And it's astonishing to see how many companies, investors, websites, bloggers, et cetera, just, you know, gave up, quit, or just no longer exist. You know, in this 30 years of, of, you know, Chesapeake, has there been times when you said, you know what, you know, I'm kind of done or this, the markets have changed or want to get into something else, maybe go buy a baseball team like Henry did. What's, what's, or, you know, has it ever been to the point of maximum frustration, you know, and particularly you mentioned this post 2009 environment of, of just soldiering on? Well, I mean, I think you have good days and bad days. I think it is difficult in you know, a discipline part is at least 50% of it. I think that having sort of grown up around mentors, not just, like I said, getting in the rules and the ideas, but seeing how they responded and, and uh, how we were taught to respond from an emotional point of view, I think that that's what that quote represents is that it's difficult to stand up in the face of losses and underperformance and you get afraid or 
But I can say one thing right now that I don't, that at least when I first started trading in the 80s and 90s, before we became a full-fledged trading firm with technology and computers, that there's no doubt that the amount of money that I did not make based upon a lack of discipline or, you know, not following the rules or being uh, wanting to get out of profits too quickly or not take the next trade overwhelms the amount of money that I didn't make because my approach wasn't as good as it could have been. I think that's the way it is with most people. Do you have sort of a most memorable market memory? Is it, is it the 60% down in one day or is there a particular trade that stands out in your mind in the, in the past 30 years? Oh, there's been some fun trades. I remember, I think 1989, we made 30% in the year. We made 30% in January. I mean, in December of that year, and I think we it was all in one trade, which was heating oil, and going to a Christmas party. And uh, I had clients there at this Christmas party. We were all just looking at the Weather Channel, seeing how cold it was in New York. So that's... It's funny. A lot of kind of fun trades like that. I wonder what the longest uh, trade you've had in terms of years. Has there been any like multiple two, three, four year trades? Yeah, there's been a few. You know, obviously the metal trades of the base, copper, aluminum, and um, that ended in 2006 was a big trade. But we frequently have trades that go a year or two. I think that was a crazy small trade we had. I think it was euro yen, euro dollar. Japanese yen trade that lasted three or four years, maybe it just wouldn't, we just wouldn't, uh, the trend just wouldn't break. But you know, a lot of that's just a function of your time frame, your look, look back period. So, and and because I know you, I know you scale in a little bit or scale out, uh, or I may be speaking for you, but I think I heard that somewhere. So you're not necessarily always just a binary decision where you're in or out. You know, we were talking the other day about the Dow. It's it's now, I think it's the second longest bull market ever in the Dow and not by magnitude, so not by percent gain, but but time. And then I think if we make it through the spring, it ends up being the longest bull market ever if if we if we if we make it through the spring. So getting pretty long in the tooth there. But like you said, you know, who had you asked anyone two, three, four years ago if this train would continue on US stocks, it would be pretty, pretty doubtful. But that's the beauty, the beauty of trend following. Your second most popular tweet almost two years ago now was, it says, and I'm going to post all these to the show notes, listeners, so the links and everything else. It says, David Harding's portfolio growth versus Buffett over the past 18 years, hashtag trend following. And it shows Harding of Winton is just dominating Buffett. And for fun, because I know you wouldn't want to uh, you know, draw attention to yourself, but you know, we ran the numbers for Chesapeake versus Buffett, and um, y'all have certainly had a higher sharp ratio than Buffett has over this period. Buffett's actually more volatile than than Chesapeake has been. So kudos to you. But it's a good example of people, you know, who Buffett probably has the best brand of anyone <laughs> in investing. How he's managed to cultivate it, but it also just goes to show a totally different investing approach like trend following has had equal or better performance than one of the best managers of all time. Of course. I mean, let's think about it. I mean, he, he has, um, he has one of our sectors, you know, and, um, so we, you know, we step on the playing field with 75% of our markets are not stocks. And so obviously we have a huge advantage 
in the sense that uh, the currencies and the commodities and interest rates can give you a much more diversified portfolio. Once again, though, it comes back to one question, you know, and that is, do stocks have superior trends uh, versus the other markets? And they don't. So the, they have great trends. But the currencies and the bonds and the commodities, you know, leverage adjusted, risk adjusted are just as good. So there is nothing to be lost from trading more markets, trading these particular markets, trading shorts. It is, you know, obviously this free, free lunch and we need to take advantage of it. I was going to type up an article the other day because I love the esoteric markets. So we wrote an article years ago um, in a white paper called What If Sir Isaac Newton Was a Trend Follower that looked at kind of humorously using a trend following approach on a lot of historical bubbles. So GMO has written a lot about bubbles, but we just overlaid a 200-day or 10-month moving average on all these historical bubbles. And not surprisingly, it saves your hide in these bubbles because you ride them up and then get out at some point. You may lose 30%, but you don't lose 100 And the example was Sir Isaac Newton in the South Sea bubble. And I was pinning the article at the time because Bitcoin was going straight through the roof at the time. And I said, look, this is all the classic attributes of a bubble. Here's an example. You just use the long-term moving average. It'll get you out at some point when this crashes. And sure enough, Bitcoin crashed. It got you out. And then I was going to update it the other day because Bitcoin has now entered this long uptrend again and had a great year last year. And so I was joking because it's not exchange traded, but I said a lot of these Bitcoin traders could certainly uh, learn a thing or two about trend following and saving their hides because you can apply trend following to almost any market in the world. And I know our friends at Longboard were on an earlier podcast. They were talking about trading, man, what was it, carbon credits or something? And I think there's only one futures market that's banned. Do you do you know do you know what I'm talking about? Is it is it onions? There there's one agricultural product that it's there's some you know Congress passed a rule years ago that says you're not allowed to trade ever have futures market. I think it's onions <laughs> anyway. So uh, I love the esoteric markets, but obviously some of them some of them don't scale. All right, um, you want another one of your best tweets says most people can pick winners. Most people just can't manage winners, and most let a few losers wreck their portfolio. Uh, maybe you want to make a quick quick comment on that? You know, I think that uh, over time and experience, I don't think most people kind of don't probably don't have as much of a problem taking small losses. You know, that's probably not that big of a deal. Maybe it is for some people, but I definitely think that um, what separates successful from unsuccessful is not getting out of your winning trades too quickly. And from my point of view, of course, when you are pretty confident and you feel good about your system your system of uh, exiting the market and you're gonna follow this rule, so it basically just gets back to don't get out of the trade until your, your rule has been hit. And I think that's where people have a very difficult time. And I know I used to, uh, like I said, when I just sat in front of a machine, uh, the quote machine by myself and uh, didn't have a, the type of structure we have now that you just sort of say, wow, I just can't sit through this drawdown. I'm going to give back all this profit. But people are much more sophisticated now. CTAs and, you know, the majority of CTAs, they don't do just, they don't really do a discretionary trade, come into the trading room and say, exit my uh, Swiss franc or sugar. They built it into their systems, whether it's through vol targeting or different methodologies, which I sort of call just systematic discretion which is I'm not going to accept a 
you know, this trade having a big drawdown, and I'll just create a rule that may not be that great of a rule, may not be robust or legit, I can at least say I have a rule. And so the whole human nature of not giving back profits is destructive. And um, the, trying to manage any one particular trade is not what we do. We we do every trade the same way with the same entries and same exits, and it's going to look horrible in some trades. We are going to give back almost all the profit, but it's what you're supposed to do and not worry about it and not try to manage your trade P&L or your quarterly or weekly or monthly P&L. So it is the plague of all humans to want to book that profit and figure out a way to do it legitimately. But the only legitimate way is to just follow the the robust system and follow those rules and hang in there and be bold, uh, be bold with your profits and be cowardly with your losses. But we have a tendency to do the opposite. If it's a loss, we want to be bold because we want it to come back. And if we have a profit, we want to be cowardly because we're afraid of giving it back. And of course, that's straight from 1983. I'm quoting Richard Dennis, basically, and that hasn't changed and probably won't change. I think you, you you had a philosopher quote on your website from like the 1800s, 1700s, 17th century or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Along those same lines. I can't, do, do you remember it? I can't remember it off the top of my head. It's not exactly this, but it's basically take small losses and let your profits run. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's you know, and, and we talk about, when we talk about trend following too, we tell people, we say, look, you know, Charles Dow was talking about this over a hundred years ago and it's a very simple concept, but for a lot of people, their, their behavioral quirks um, makes it really challenging for them. And, and one of the biggest quirks is the numerous losing trades in, in, in a row or like any strategy. And this go, actually goes along with one of your quotes. Is you, This is a couple of years ago. But you say, great funds lose money more often than good funds do. You can't have grand slams without a lot of strikeouts. And it, you've seen this behavior in the allocations where every few years people say trend following is dead and CTAs are dead. And then they have another year like 08 and then everyone rushes into them. And we were actually talking about this on Buffett the other day because we said he's getting ready to print another year for his stock portfolio underperforming the S&P, and it's something like eight out of the last 10. However, had you been following this back to 2000, you would have beaten the market by something like five percentage points per year. But most individuals and institutions have about a two to three year time frame looking at performance which is, you know, exactly the wrong the wrong time frame. Have you seen that kind of as a money manager for both individuals and institutions? Do you try to spend a lot of time educating them on on not being their own worst enemy and have you seen that sort of consistently bad behavior and timing or have you cultivated to this point where you say no, we're we're kind of only taking clients that you know, get it. What's, what's kind of been the experience there on, on people? Oh, no, you're right. That's one of the best ideas ever. You know, this whole underperform for years and then over a long period of time, you overperform. I love that. That's just perfect. And that's what you'd expect. But I just wonder sometimes, you know, I've just often wondered is, is it even um, possible to have optimal trading be a business? Because you are relying upon people who don't know how to trade. They have bad ideas. They going to lead you astray. They want you to create a system that that does bad things. It takes small profits, and so no, it's it's just the worst part about managing money and trading is having to deal with people who, if they could trade, they obviously would, but since they can't, they and these are the people who allocate money to me, 
and criticize me and, and, and put pressure on the manager to do the wrong thing and be short term and worry about underperforming. I've actually had people call me up and say, you'll never make money again. I've been in this business <laughs> 10 years and I've seen this before. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> uh. <laughs> it's lonely, but you know, it's great business, but it certainly it would be a better business. Um, if we could just trade our own money and I'd have to listen to all the silliness. Well, that's, that's interesting because like you've seen some, you know, and so running a, we launched this digital advisor and one of the biggest problems we've seen a lot of these robo advisors have is one, they're all buy and hold. So they all do the same thing and that's fine. You know, if you want a passive beta global market portfolio, that's fine because they don't cost anything at this point, but behaviorally none have existed during a bear market and I'm really afraid to see what's going to happen in the next bear market because there's no barrier. At least when you have a financial advisor, there's at least some barrier between people and doing something stupider. And and so it's I think it's going to be really concerning to see what happens next time. But who knows? We, we may never have a bear market again. But it, it just give me an idea because I was like, one way, and I've seen a couple ideas. So one way is that people obviously do lockups. But lockups is kind of tough because, you know, or, or give a fee discount if people either are long-term clients or if they lock up. So I know the Ritholtz guys gave a fee discount if you've been at, been an investor at the firm a long time. The problem with that, of course, is that if they have bad performance, they're still going to get fired. So they don't care about the, the discount. Maybe an idea would be to say, look, you sit down with an institution and say, you know what, I'll take your money. However... If we hit a, pick the number, 10, 20, 30, 40% drawdown or have a couple losing years in a row, you double your investment. And if we have a big run, you need to redeem out. <laughs> Maybe that would be the right, the contract to have. I don't, I don't know if you would ever get any, any, any investors that way, but it might, might be an idea. Well, good. Look, I, I, I don't want to take you for too long. We're, we've, I think, already hit the hour mark. But let's. Um, I have a few more questions to, to talk about before we wind down and let you get back to the, the Florida sun. You talked a little bit about Zweig, who's one of you know the, the heavyweight champions of the kind of quant technical analyst space, but also a guy that wrote a ton about fundamentals. And the younger crowd won't know who this is, but he's one of my favorite examples you know, so many people, it just drives me nuts every time I hear it, that'll say technical analysis doesn't work or trend following doesn't work, or I've never met a rich technician, which was always my favorite quote, because I would always just say, like a few years ago when Marty passed, he had the, I think, most expensive apartment in New York City that had ever sold or something. And in a true, just, you know, brilliant mind. And so you mentioned some of his books. And so we'll link to them in the show notes. What other sort of research and books have, have been sort of an inspiration to you over the years? Or do you have any favorites in general that that uh, listeners may like? I definitely think that anytime you can get your hands on an interview of a famous trader, it's a really a good idea. Magazines, books, uh, market wizards, of course. Um, people will have a tendency to tell you more of what they believe, what's in their heart, something that you can research and think on. I think that reading interviews and biographies of famous people and traders and getting to the core of what drives them and thinking on it, putting it away, coming back to it you know, months or a year later and to see how you can have it jive with what you know to be true and how you want to do things in the future. I think that's very key. Zweig was just so humble 
and uh, smart. But I do think that there is a difference, material difference between technical analysis and trend following. That's in my mind, they're not the same. Trend following is, is a systematic approach. There's entries and exits, and they're based on moving averages and breakouts. And technical analysis is patterns and chart reading and cups and saucers and things like that, which I don't really understand or agree with. So I do think that um, they get thrown into the sort of the same group sometimes, but systematic trading with one entry, one exit, and a stop loss. That's how I would do it in order to create a robust, large sample of trades is the way to do it. We never know what's going to happen. We never, we're not good at predicting. We only make money on 40% of the trades. We do know the right positions to be in, but we don't know what's going to happen. That uh, we got famous for riding oil down from you know 90 some dollars down to 20 some. Well, I'd done that trade a dozen times a couple of years before and it had failed almost every time. And I was the last person to know. It wasn't important to know on that particular trade that it was going to actually work and work to the degree that it did. All I had to do was just follow my system. And we actually wrote an article after that happened called The Agony and Ecstasy of Being a Trend Follower, where it showed kind of the the whipsaws of, you know, the oil trade on a hypothetical, just simple moving average, and then the massive, massive downdraft. And I get a lot of questions from readers that say, well, Meb, I, I like this trend following approach, but how do I get rid of the whipsaws? And I said, well, look, bud, that's just a feature of the system. You, if you could magically get rid of those, then you're going to have a Madoff equity curve and you know, let me know how to do it. It's funny you mentioned that about technical analysis. So technical analysis, you know, uh, this is an interesting story is that I went through the CMT program, which is the Charter Market Technician. And when I got to the third year, I said, oh, my God. I don't believe 90% of this stuff, talk, like you mentioned, uh, these chart patterns that didn't seem to have any objective backtests or historical statistics and Elliott Wave and all this just kind of arcane voodoo. And I said, there's no way I'm taking that third level test. And then they also had at the time it offered the ability to write a paper. And so they then announced they were getting rid of the paper requirement. And so I, in like December 29th, this is 10 years ago now, uh, turned in an abstract on just, it was basically literally just like trend following on markets. Cause I had no idea what I was going to write about. And so ended up writing my first white paper and you know, that's actually going to hit a 10 year anniversary this year. So I got to update it. But the funny takeaway was the first time I wrote it, the title was, man, I think it was a simple approach to market timing or a quant approach to market timing and no one would read it. I sent it to a bunch of famous traders and like 99% of them were just basically like, market timing doesn't work. I'm not going to read this. You're an idiot. And I even got some really nasty responses. I posted a few from people that were famous traders that were <laughs> remain nameless on the blog. And then I changed the title to a quant approach to tactical asset allocation, which is a much more palatable buzzword. And then it, <laughs> it became the most read paper, I think, on the entire database. So it's just kind of funny about the branding. You know, you talk about where people, they hear one, if you say the word market timing, their brain starts to, uh, starts to melt down. So, you know, kind of in the same vein, you know, we got a lot of younger listeners and traders. And, and so, you know, as we were talking about the books, I, I agree with you that there's a lot of resources that would actually be 
Um, you know, Michael Covell is certainly a, a, a trend following. He's got 500 podcasts with famous traders. But if you look to a lot of the other CTAs and you Google CTA performance or managed future trend following performance, you can find a lot of shops and they have a lot of research that actually sits on their own website. So ISAM, AQR, Chesapeake, which is Jerry's site. A lot of these sites have a ton of research. It often goes down the rabbit hole and gets a little esoteric, but that's a great place. So what would you recommend to a young trader or an investor that wants to get involved in trend following and maybe not just like, you know, there's the initial, hey, I'll allocate to a fund, but maybe that wants to, you know, actually start to practice it or learn kind of the craft themselves. What would what would be your suggestions there on either resources or just in general thoughts? I would say do what I did and get uh, win the lottery and get a great mentor. <laughs> there's nothing like a mentor. I don't know. I mean, I just think people like Richard Dennis and Bill Eckhart are rare, people who have this sort of um, skepticism about everything and life is hard, trading is hard. You're not going to find anything that's so great. This is the way we were taught to look at things, and I think that's rare. But it's worth trying to find somebody who would take you under their wing and show you uh, and teach you what they know. And, you know, I would say that's the most important thing in any area of life is um, work hard and work for peanuts and learn next to a master over time, read and understand and start crafting and creating your own philosophy of how things work. And don't kid yourself. It's probably always worse than you think it could possibly be. I think having that sort of attitude, especially as it relates to, tr- to managing and trading money is, is a good attitude to have. Don't want to be too optimistic. Uh, you, you may regret this because the the next day after this podcast airs, you're going to have about 100 podcast listeners at your door willing to work for free in Richmond, Richmond, Virginia, or wherever you may be at the time. So fair, fair warning what you asked for. Um, I do think it's great advice. You know, we get a lot of career questions from people. And I always say to the people, I say, look, do something of value. And so I, I can't tell you how many articles I get where people will just be like, Meb, email me. And they'll be just like, Meb, can you tell me how you got started at, uh, and built your business? And I'm like, really? You're going to ask me to take an hour of my time and type this in and and just give you this playbook? No. The best way you can do it is to show up and be of value. So email someone, say, is there any research projects I can work on for free or anything that I could do or or actually do something and then show it to them. Anyway, those are some good ideas. I think the mentorship is an amazing way to to get your foot in the door. There's a great uh, Steve Jobs video making the rounds on the internet right now where he talks about calling up on the phone um, the founder of Hewlett Packard when he was 12 and asking if he had this part that he could buy and the guy answered the phone at his house. And he said, back then, you could just look up in the white pages and call someone. And so he says, you know, the the moral was that if you don't ask, you'll never get an answer. And so he ended up working on the assembly line at HP as, as a teenager. And so I think a lot of the same things applies where if you really make the effort, there can, there can be a lot to find. And I think if you probably ran a version 2.0, of the turtle experiment today, you would probably get a, about a hundred thousand 
uh, responses anyway. It's, it's It would be a little bit different. There's actually a website that we've spoken at their conference a few times, Quantopian, that's a little more of a crowdsourced quant site. They just got a big funding from SAC, but couple of their most popular algorithms are actually trend-following algorithms. So Yeah, I think that um, the new Turtle 2.0 is definitely coding. So I got lucky. You know, I was, I was brought to Chicago, given a cush job, told everything I needed to know, and just do the trades. And so now it's, since I totally believe in systematic trading, that in order to help uh, add value to Chesapeake or... Uh, anybody, you need to code and do some backtesting and come up with your own systematic approach. That's the new, uh, that's the turtle program of the future. But, you know, I, I, I'm shocked that, um, I mean, I don't want to rant too much, but I'm like really shocked when I meet young traders or young people in the business. They are not interested in my ideas as much as um, I was just a very quiet person in the corner, sucking it all in and listening and and if I didn't agree with it or, and, or didn't understand it, I just stored it away and I'd come back to it. I've had that happen many times. Listen to famous traders and I said, I don't think I agree with that, but I don't understand it probably. And then years later, I would say to myself, oh, now I get it. Yep, I didn't really get it then. But the chances of, of me when I meet uh, young traders or people ask send me their resume, if I have an interaction with them, they're mostly arguing with me, telling me why I'm wrong. Huh. <laughs> so, I mean, it's up to them, of course, but I think that this is the type of person that trading um, attracts, you know, um, and that is a person with strong convictions who smart, thinks they're smarter than everyone else. I'm not saying there's not a place for that. And I know that I have been a very rude, arrogant person before, I'm sure. But let me just say, there's a time I'm in a place to shut up, listen, store it away, I think about it. People with 20, 30, 40 years worth of experience, they deserve a little bit more respect than uh, whippersnappers who, you know, when I, the first, one of the questions that Richard Dennis asked me in the interview was, as a percentage of what's, pos what's possible to be known about trading, how much do you think you already know? <laughs> and most of the guys said 90%. Oh, my God. And, uh, yeah, and it's ridiculous. And I just got a chill when I just said that because it's so stupid. And, and of course, Rich hired one woman, Liz Cheval, and her response to the question was, uh, very little. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so there you have well, it. I mean, and and the, yeah. there's no more humbling game than the financial markets. And if you participate long enough, and we're actually thinking about writing a book on this because I think a lot of parents kind of incentivize as they're trying to teach their children or not even parent to child, but, but just learning about markets in general, a lot of people kind of go with the wrong approach and learn the, the wrong lessons until they lose a bunch of money. And then they eventually figure it out by trial and error. But I think there's probably a lot of better ways to learn. But the, yeah, there's no more humbling. I mean, I ate bologna sandwiches and mustard sandwiches for a year after blowing up some option trades when I was in my young 20s. So I, I learned all my behavioral biases pretty Pretty early when I didn't have any money, so I'm 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 happy to have been inoculated, as you say, to trend following at a at an early age. Jerry, you've you've also real quick before we finish, we often ask people, uh, you know, this was a 2016. This might be the last one. Is there anything beautiful, useful, magical that you can think of that other people may not know about that you might might want to pass along? Oh, I was afraid of this question. So I looked on your website and I saw what everyone else had, had uh, mentioned and a lot of those I really like. I just, I'm a 
recent convert um, to Dashlane. I'm just totally in love with Dashlane. I mean, if you have to, it's just it, my personality, you know, storing my passwords. I'm safe. There's really nothing better. So, I mean, I have a long list. i tell you one thing I think is kind of useful is barchart.com. It's the best place to go for free quotes. And when you're traveling or you have your iPhone and you want to know what the bonds are doing, you know, most of the time when I see a bond, there is no such thing as a bond quote. It is the yield. CNN or Fox runs the yield at the bottom, uh, which doesn't tell me how the bonds did today. So barchart.com is a great free resource uh, for commodities, currencies, stocks, interest rates. It's just fantastic. Ooh, um, that's a good one. You know, we're, I'm, into the, I'm into the free stuff, um, as most of us are these days. It's funny. So we'd use stock charts for a while on the blog as a, as a link just to, to some permalinks. And going back to, you know, young investors, one of the biggest challenges was always, and I'll just go ahead and use this as mine. I just thought about it just now. Um, is we posted a, we posted historically free data sources on the blog and it's a list of you know French fama and places you can get historical stock returns back to the 1800s all this good stuff and the biggest challenge is, is a coder or younger investors access to data but there's a lot of resources and the biggest one I would suggest to people is go cozy up to your local business school and this is actually what I did for our first white paper 10 years ago is I found a friend at Stanford's GSB and I said, hey, um, is actually a girl. And I said, hey, Lindsay, can I borrow your Stanford login because you have access to about $150,000 worth of uh, professional databases? She said, yeah, sure, of course. And so I downloaded everything to my heart's content. You know, Stanford, uh, you know, if you're listening, I'll, I'll give you a citation in the paper in the next go around. But uh, there's a lot of ways to um, to probably get student discounts. And, you know, again, going back to the, the original ideas, you just you just got to ask. So that, yeah, th- those are both both great ones. Um, bar chart, we'll add links in the, in the show notes. Jerry, where can people find more information on you if they want to follow your writings, updates, funds? Uh, where's the best spots? Well, everything that I'm thinking on a daily basis that's important to me is on Twitter. It's funny because you read some what I think is important and what I like and what I really think is a great tweet doesn't always resonate with others. But um, I really like using Twitter uh, as a sort of a diary and I want to be able to go back over my life and see what I was thinking and what I thought was important at the time, politics, religion, business, sports, the NBA, and of course, trend following and trading. So Twitter and ChesapeakeCapital.com is a good place as well. Yeah, and and Virginia basketball. Um, And so Jerry, by the way, also, we didn't even get to this today. So we're going to have to have you back on in like six months or 12 months. But we didn't even get to the topic of... Um, you know, you historically manage CTAs, but also have a handful of mutual funds now and the evolution of kind of trading and, and public vehicles. But we're already at the, man, 80-minute mark, so we'll, we'll save that discussion for another day. Um, by the way, we we did have a big win last night over Louisville. So UVA is, is putting together a pretty good basketball squad this year. Very trustworthy. I was very happy. The Lightning won and UVA won that. Yeah, we have a good situation now. We got to worry about football. Hopefully, that will improve one of these days. I can normally get by by being a Denver Broncos fan, but we are sadly out of the postseason. So my my, my year is over for the rest of the year. Jerry, it's been so much fun. Thank you uh, so much for joining us today. 
Again, you can always go find the show notes at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. We'll add the transcript for this later. Um, and please go leave us a review on iTunes. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening, friends. Good investing. Today's podcast is sponsored by Global Financial Data. We've been using data series from GFD for almost 10 years, ever since I wrote my first white paper. The data has been super useful in other areas like creating CAPE ratio calculations. And for over 20 years, Global Financial Data has been aggregating and transcribing data from original sources, which no other data provider has done before. Please have a look at their website at globalfinancialdata.com for more info and to set up a trial account. If you mentioned that I sent you, they're offering a 20% discount on all new business subscriptions. Again, that's globalfinancialdata.com.